morning. Good to be with you this morning, seeing all your smiling faces coming in, hearing you sing. Man, what a joy to be here this morning. Uh, I just need to reminisce for a second. Um, it's interesting, about 15 years ago, um, I was a, a worship pastor, like Justin, for, for many years. Many of you know that, some of you may not, but I was a worship pastor for like a decade. And that so- second song we played, From the Inside Out, was like super popular at that time. And it was like my go-to worship song. And uh, it was just so, like I got goosebumps listening to that song for the first time in a long time. And then listening to my boys play it, like, man, just what a, God is so good. Yeah, it was really, really neat. So don't ask me to do or lead worship. I'm retired from that. So don't ask me. People ask me to do that. No more of that. No more of that. But uh, when I was about 15 or 16 years old, I, uh, I had this opportunity to be part of a two-week work crew at uh, the Christian summer camp that I went to uh, growing up. Now, as a kid, I would spend a week each summer at the Christian camp as a camper, but this time I was signing up to be one of the leaders, and I was ecstatic. I was excited, right? Like I had sort of graduated to leadership at the Christian camp. And so not only in my mind was I going to get to spend two weeks at this beautiful camp on this lake, this place that I loved going to, but I was going to get to be someone who had a little bit of influence and a little bit of impact in the campers that were coming. And so when I was signed up, I was told that we would be doing some minor maintenance around the camp, and then we would be helping to lead. (laughs) Seem to know where I'm going with this. Uh, around the camp, and then we were helping to lead some of the activities that were going to be going on at the camp. And um, by the way, I actually paid to have to go up there and do this. I don't you know, looking back, I was like, wow, what in the world? So, you know, I was like, okay, fine, we'll fix some toilets, we'll paint some walls, and we'll get to hang out with the kids, we'll get to swim in the lake, we'll get to go to the chapel and do the thing, it'll be great, right? And so there were three other teenage guys that went with, one of them was a good friend of mine, and when we arrived, we were escorted into this dorm room, and there were these two bunk beds, it was great, it was in like the big, you know, place where all the leaders stayed, we felt cool, like, yeah, we're part of this group, and so we got we got settled or whatever, and then we were greeted by our supervisor, and he came to us. He said, I want you to unpack, and then let's meet in the mess hall, and we'll talk about what's going to be happening. So we did, went to the dining hall, and we sat down. I don't remember everything that he told us at that moment. All I remember is he said, you need to be ready to go at six in the morning. (laughs) And I was like, we all kind of looked at each other like, is that really necessary? Like six in the morning? Okay, so, so whatever, whatever, we begrudgingly, we got up and, you know, the four of us dragged ourselves out of bed and then the next thing we were doing, we were in the back of a truck with all this stuff and we were driving down this dirt road like, where are we going? What is this about? And so eventually we got almost to the edge of the camp and we unloaded the truck and we were standing around in a circle and the supervisor said, all right, here's the task for the next two weeks. We were given the job of digging a three-foot trench for a utility line they wanted to run from one area of the camp to another. So then he walked us to where the utility line needed to go. And I didn't measure it, but it was a long walk. It was a really long walk. And so he gave us our shovels, and then he drove off in the truck. 
and bid us good luck. Now, by mid-afternoon that first day, we had barely even scratched the surface on how far we had to go. I mean, we, we had to go a long way. And then I just remember by evening, we were absolutely beat. We were covered in mud. We were blistered. The four of us had just wondered, what in the world did we just get ourselves into, right? For the next week, we simply woke up, we ate breakfast, we jumped inside the bed of that truck, and we dug a trench. That's what we did for an entire week and a half. And in the evening, we did have a little bit of downtime where we could hang out with the rest of the camp, but we were so tired, it didn't matter. We just went to our bunk beds and laid down. Now, needless to say, what I had imagined this camp experience would be like for me, and what it actually was, we're light years apart. Never in a million years would I hope that that's what it would have been. I was hoping for fun in the sun, you know, and playing some games and painting a room or two. Instead, what I got bordered on breaking child labor laws. I mean, it was brutal. And I got to thinking this week that participating in God's mission can often be like this. Right? Like, if you've ever deciding, you know what, I want to follow the call of God in my life. I want to participate in what God is doing in the world. What you often imagine that work will be like can actually be very different in real life. I mean, maybe you've experienced that before. Yeah, I remember going on a mission trip to Mexico, and we were excited, and we got there, and they showed us we were going to stay. And I was like, there's no way that any of us are ever going to sleep the next four nights. It just wasn't what we expected. And yet, for some reason, it was an amazing experience. But you've experienced that, right? Or you've jumped in and to participate in what God was leading you to do, and then it just wasn't quite what you had expected. You've been there before? It just didn't quite meet your expectations. As I read our passage today, I realized, you know, nobody understood this better than Paul. Nobody. So with that in mind, grab your phone and, and your Bible and turn with me to our passage today. You can open up the Version app and follow us along, um, or you can go to chapter 14 of the book of Acts in your Bible if you have that with you. So just as always, I want to give us a little bit of a recap as to where we've been up to this point, just for context. Paul and Barnabas have been making their way through a number of different cities and uh, I'll show it on the screen, the kind of a map of where they've been. They started in Seleucia and Syria. They moved to Cyprus. They made their way up to Pamphylia and then into Galatia. They last were at Antioch and Pisidia. They moved uh, west to Iconium. And then they get chased out of Iconium and they head south to this town called Lystra. Now, if you're kind of like, what am I looking at? This would be modern day Turkey, okay? If you're just kind of like looking at it, it is modern day Turkey. That's where they are in the story. And they go to Lystra. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. And it's important to note that as Paul and Barnabas make their way through each of the cities, they're always encountered by two things. The first thing is there is a group of, always a group of people that accept what they're talking about. They accept them. They love it. They want to hear more. And there's also a group of people that completely oppose what they're saying. They don't like it. They don't want anything to do with them. And it's important to note that because what happens is that because some people like them and some people hate them, they have to constantly make decisions about what the best next move is for them. 
when they're at Iconium, things get kind of nasty. And so they decide, you know what? It's best for us to leave so we can keep spreading this message. And so they go to this town called Lystra and things don't get any better. Let's pick it up. Acts chapter 14, verse eight. While they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He'd been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up, and the man jumped to his feet and started walking. Now, these sorts of miracles weren't uncommon among the apostles. It, it wasn't super common. In fact, it was rare, but it wasn't completely uncommon. We see Peter uh, have a similar instance of miracle working and healing in Acts chapter 3. He does it again in Acts chapter 9. These men are armed with the Holy Spirit. And so himself, Paul, is able to bring healing to the crippled man in Lystra because he recognizes this man has faith and the Holy Spirit wants to bring him healing. Now, we believe that that gift is still around today. Physical healing is possible, but like it was in the first century, it's not all the time, but it's also not completely uncommon. But here's the thing. Paul and Barney, can we call him Barney? It's just easier. <laughs> They're in new territory, right? For the first time in this trek through modern-day Turkey, they're in, a, in an area where there's very little Jewish influence. This is predominantly Greek territory. And because of that, Paul and Barnabas are about to find out how the Greeks interpret this miracle that they just performed. It's going to get messy, okay? Bear with it. Chapter 14, verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Which I don't understand. Isn't Zeus the big guy? I don't know how Barnabas got that one, but whatever. That's regardless. Verse 13. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. So the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. Okay. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and guess that this is not what Paul and Barney expected when they went to Lystra. They did not go there thinking, man, we're going to express the, this great news of Jesus. We're going to heal people. And then you know what's going to happen? They're going to start worshiping us as Zeus and Hermes. And they're going to, you know, they're going to lay down sack. No, they, this was far from what they expected. They have gone from healing a crippled man through the power of the Holy Spirit to being worshiped as Greek gods. People are even prepared to offer sacrifices to them, Paul and Barnabas. And it seems odd to us. It does. It seems odd to us that the people in Lystra would do something like this. But actually, Greek folklore would tell us that the story of Zeus and Hermes actually runs parallel to some of what Paul and Barnabas are doing. Their tradition would say, actually, this makes sense, that they would be like Zeus and Hermes. But Paul and Barnaby, they're confused. <laughs> they're not quite sure what to do, and so they do what they only know what to do. They just jump into action. They've got to do something. They've got to set the record straight. It's verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard what was happening, 
They tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? Now listen, they're not streaking for no good reason, okay? They didn't just rip their clothes off to go streaking. Uh, Tearing their clothes in the first century for a Jewish man was a symbol and an expression of the fact that they've heard blasphemy and they feel saddened by it. It was an expression of theirs. And so they're asking him, friends, why are you doing this? We're merely human beings just like you. We've come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. Now, if if you've been here the last few weeks or if you've watched online, you may recall that Paul and Barnabas have used a very different tactic when it comes to sharing Jesus to those who are listening. In Antioch and Iconium, their audience was predominantly Jewish. So they tell the story of Jesus from a predominantly Jewish perspective. But here in Lystra, their audience is predominantly Greek. So they meet them where they are. They don't just shove the God of the Old Testament down their throats. They wouldn't have known much about that anyway, if anything. So instead, they speak to them in terms they might understand. They use what they know. They talk about things like creation and nation building and provision and even their own emotions to attach their understanding of a creator to the one true God. It's brilliant what Paul does here. You see that throughout the book of Acts. He's constantly studying those he's talking to, and he's never making assumptions about them. He's understanding that not everybody's going to hear this good news the same way. When you move from city to city, town to town, country to country, things have to morph and change. You could talk about Jesus just about anywhere. Actually, you can talk about Jesus anywhere you want, but you can't talk about it the same way you would in one place to another. Does that make sense? I think sometimes when we get caught up in how we talk about Jesus, we forget to think about the fact that everybody who's listening is bringing their own experiences and context. We can't talk about Jesus in America the same way we can talk about Jesus in China. You can't do it. Two different contexts, two different circumstances. You have to be able to talk the language and be able to speak into their world about the one true God. And nobody examples that better than Paul. I mean, it's brilliant on the Paul part of Paul, and we can learn much from it. And what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to cut through the mess. Things have gotten out of hand, right? Like, I mean, they're about to offer sacrifices to them. This is blasphemy. And Paul is like, we got to get to the point here. And so he takes his time to figure out, how do I tell them about Jesus? But it only just seems to stir the crowds further with their worship of Paul and Barney. It doesn't quite work the way he thought. Verse 18, it says, But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Can you just imagine in your mind's eye this scene right now? People are fighting their way to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. This is craziness, what's happening to them. And I can only imagine what Paul and Barney are thinking. They must be looking at each other and wondering, how did we get here? Like we set off a few months ago and we were gung-ho, we're going to bring the world, we're going to be Jesus to the world. And now, how did we get 
here, and how do we get out of this mess? They're on the run from Jews chasing them out of town, and now the Greek folks are worshiping, are worshiping them as Zeus and Hermes. Not what they expected, not what they could have ever imagined. But if that weren't enough, things are actually about to get a whole lot messier for Paul and Barney. Verse 19. It says, then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. <laughs> just to be clear, Paul and Barney were just in Antioch. They were just in Iconium. And people opposed them so much that they have traveled hundreds of miles to chase them down and eliminate them. In the chaos and the mess of the Greeks in Lystra wanting to make sacrifices to them, Paul and Barnabas on the, all of a sudden realize that things are starting to shift. Those who are there, they don't want anything to do with them anymore. And then they realize that these Jews from Antioch and Iconium have traveled all this distance simply to be there to get the people to turn against them. A messy situation gets even messier for them. I mean, again, these people have traveled a great distance to squelch what Paul and Barnabas are doing. From those who are from Antioch, they've traveled more than 100 miles. From those who are from uh, Iconium, they've traveled more than 20. And they didn't have Teslas back then. So this took a while for them to get there, right? There, there was no gas stations. There were no cars. You know, the internal combustion engine wasn't going to be invented for another 1,900 years. It took them days to track down Paul and Barnabas. And then when they finally get there, they greet them with an incredibly brutal act of violence. And they capture Paul and they stone him to the point of death. And if you're wondering, what does it mean to be stoned? It's what you're thinking. It's people gathering around you, throwing rocks they can barely hold up in whatever direction they can to make the most graphic impact on your body. That's what stoning is. Most people die from it. In fact, they stone Paul so badly that they think he's dead and they drag him out of the town. He's not, but they think he's dead. I mean, he, he would have been stoned so badly that his body would have been disfigured. His face, his head, he would have multiple broken bones throughout his body. And so it is only a miracle of God that this didn't kill Paul. In fact, it didn't kill, it did not only kill them, but I'm guessing that Paul had to have experienced some sort of healing power because look what happens next in verse 20. It says, but as the believers gathered around him, Paul, he got up and he went back into the town. Yeah, right? Listen, if you're ever in a situation where people start throwing rocks at you, don't go back there, Okay. Don't do it. And yet Paul does. I don't really know why, other than the fact that I, I, I'm, sen I'm sensing that, that Paul is a little bit of a stubborn man and uh, wants people to understand that he's not going to be pushed, uh, pushed down. But eventually they do leave and they go to Derby, it says. Listen, I turned 44 last, or this last Thursday. And uh, you don't have to, no, no, you don't, no, no, it's not why I'm telling you. 
No, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, I turned 44, which um, is exciting. But here's the deal about me. If I stub my toe, I am out for like a week, right? <laughs> like, that's it. I'm not going anywhere. I can't do anything. Paul has been stoned almost to death, and he gets up, and he moves on. And it got me thinking, like, first of all, why doesn't Paul just go, that's enough, like, whatever, I'm moving on, I'm going back to Tarsus, I don't want anything to do with this anymore, this is ridiculous. He doesn't even go to a hospital, he doesn't even go get care, at least not that we know of. He just goes back into the city, and the next day, he and Barney, they take off, and they go to the next city. What is it about Paul? What does Paul seem to understand about what he is into that keeps him moving along? And then it dawned on me, you see, Paul understands something that some of us forget very often, and that is that mission work is often messy work. He knew this going in. This was not, he knew, this was not going to be a cakewalk. He knew, I'm going to get beat up. I might get killed. I might lose everything. But you know what? I would rather participate with God in the mess than not participate with God at all. You know, funny enough, Paul actually reflects back on his time in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. I mean, this is traumatic. Like, we live in a therapeutic culture. Like, Paul needs therapy, right? I mean, he's going to have PTSD for a while. This is dramatic. But he writes to his young leader, Timothy, and he reflects back on this. And in doing so, he reminds Timothy about the messiness that occurs when you start to participate in God's mission in the world. He writes this in 2 Timothy 3. He says, you know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, but the Lord rescued me from all of it. And then he says this, listen carefully. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, Paul's experience in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, it is legendary. I mean, this guy... Like, he should have a comic book written about him. Paul understands, though, that this is par for the course. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to participate in God's mission in the world, it's going to get messy. Things are going to get messy. And Paul says, everyone, not just some, but everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. Now, persecution can look a lot different. And we know that in our 21st century world. But here's what I'm learning. Mission work is often messy. But here's the thing. If we're not in the mess, we might not be participating in God's mission. If all that we dream of is a safe, sterile you know, put together world that we can walk around in easily, I'm not sure that we're actually participating in what God wants us to do. Because Paul says, if you want to participate in what God's doing in the world, you will face persecution. You will get your hands dirty. You will have to jig three-foot trenches for 100 yards. It's going to happen. Last week, we talked about this idea that there is only one risk worth taking every single time, and that is the risk of participating in God's mission. 
and take that risk. Move in the direction that God is leading. And if you do, do not be surprised when things get messy. Expect it, anticipate it, don't be surprised by it. And whatever you do, whatever you do, don't walk away from it. Embrace the mess. Pursue the, kings of, uh, pursue the things of God's kingdom in this world and you are bound to experience some pushback, some opposition, some hatred. Things are bound to get messy. In fact, it should come as no surprise to us. I mean, these were Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. He says this to his disciples. He says, don't imagine that I came bring, to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, sometimes we think, I mean, holy smokes, Jesus, like that seems awfully controversial. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And yeah, Jesus did come to bring inner peace, but also he made it very clear that the message that he's coming to bring is going to cause division. It's going to divide families and friends. It's going to divide countries. It's going to divide nations. It's going to divide people, but it's the, it's the only method by which God's kingdom continues to expand in the world is when people like you and me who follow Jesus go, I believe in justice. I believe in compassion. I believe in grace. I believe in mercy, and the world needs to know it, and I know it's going to get a little messy, but I would rather participate in God's mission in the mess than not participate at all. And when the church decides to do that, things begin to move. And yeah, it's going to get hard and it's going to get challenging. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you, you know, exhaustion and time and resources. But I have never stepped into the mess of working in God's mission and ever regretted it. And I'll say it again, but Jesus never asked us to do something he didn't do himself. Jesus looked at our mess and what did he do? He stepped directly into the middle of it. He said, it's God's mission to bring redemption to the world. I will embrace the messiness of these people to the point of my own death. The scandalous, controversial message of Jesus being the savior of the world and making him Lord over everything it's going to split a crowd. It's going to cause havoc. It's bound to make things a little messy. But it's the exact thing that Jesus came to do, to bring us peace within ourselves, to bring justice to a broken world, to bring healing, to bring resurrection to people's lives who are ultimately heading for eternal separation from God. But here's the other thing I've realized, and Paul and Barnabas, I think in the moment, didn't, but they soon would, and we'll see what happens in the coming chapter. But that when we step into the messiness of the mission of God, it makes a huge difference. Things start to change. When we don't shy away from it, but we just attack it full force, things change. Paul's time in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra are the spark that begins to change the entire world. That was the first those are the first cities he visits and it would change the entire known world in but 50 to 60 years. Those who believe in the message of Jesus, they join the mess. And in doing so, they decide to believe in the message of Jesus and jumpstart the kingdom of God becoming a reality on earth. 
When people step into the mass, widows are cared for. Orphans are loved. The hungry get fed. The imprisoned are shown compassion. Those who are far from God come into a life-saving relationship with him. If we don't do it, nobody else will. The church's call is to participate in God's mission. And when it gets messy, we don't run from it. We go back into the city. Oh, now you're seeing it, aren't you? Paul had more work to do. You could, look, you could beat me to a pulp, Paul says, but there's still work to be done. And I will walk right back into that mess for the good of God's kingdom in this world. I mean, it certainly wasn't what Paul and Barnabas expected, but I think it was exactly as God had intended. You know, it, what's, ex, what's crazy about my experience at that summer camp when I was 15 is that as soon as I got home, I started looking for a way to go back. Who's the oddest thing? In fact, weeks later, I actually got back on a bus to the camp to spend another two weeks doing backbreaking work and hanging out with kids. Why would I do that? Because when you're in the messiness of the mission of God, oh man, it's messy and it's hard and it, you know, you're not really sure what to expect and it's unpredictable, but it is worth embracing. It is worth living into. There is nothing like it. I've been a pastor for more than 20 years. And you know what? I just keep, it gets messy in churches. I know that it seems like we got it all together, but it gets messy in churches. And God just keeps calling me back into the church. And every single time that I do, it is worth it. It is worth the messiness. You see, mission work is messy work. It is. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, Jesus didn't just come to give you a really clean, good, sterile life. He actually invited you into the messiest situations this world has to offer. But I promise you, you will never regret the messiness of participating in God's mission. It won't happen. I've never heard somebody who went on a missions trip and it got a little messy and they came home and they were like, that was the biggest waste of time. Never heard that before. I've never heard somebody go into the prisons and minister to, to men and women who don't have a clue what the future holds for them and it gets a little messy and they don't know what to say and they walk out and they're like, I'll never do that again. Nope, you'll find those people back in the prison the next week. I mean, yeah, mission work is messy, but it is a mess worth embracing. It's always worth it. You will never regret, regret the messiness in participating in God's mission. We've been talking a lot about the next generation. And some of you are afraid of the messiness that can come with engaging the next generation. I'll tell you what, you don't need to hear from me. Just talk to some of our youth leaders, talk to some of our kids' leaders, and they'll tell you, yeah, it gets messy, but man, is it worth it. Man, is it worth it every single time. You know, Jesus decided the mess was worth it. He left heaven to step into our messy world. He endured opposition and persecution and death in order for God's mission to move forward. And it was worth it, was it not? He didn't shy away from the mess. He went straight into it. So this morning, take the risk 
embrace the mess. And then as you do, I want you to simply remember these words that Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20. Because he didn't just say, I came to bring a sword. He also said, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When you're in the mess, you're not alone. When you're participating in God's mission, whatever that looks like for you, you're not alone. Jesus, the one who endured the mess for us, is with us as we participate in what he's doing in the world. Let's do that together. This week, get your hands dirty. Dig some trenches. Yeah? Get on the back of that truck. Go to the edge of the camp and start digging those trenches. I mean that metaphorically, okay? God has something in store, not just for the world, but for you as well. It's going to get messy, but it's a mess worth participating in. God, we thank you that you would step into the messiness of our world, that you saw the sin and the shame and the hurt and the pain, that you would come to us, that you would endure and embrace the messiness of the world in such a way that it would bring us hope and peace. And now, Jesus, we know that you are calling us to do the same. By the example of Paul and Barnabas, we look and we see, man, it is going to get messy when we participate in God's mission, but it is a mess worth living into. In fact, I don't want to miss the messiness. God, I, I want to I be in the middle of it to see the difference you can make when the church, the people of God decide we are willing to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. We're willing to do whatever it takes, however much money, however much time, however much commitment, we will do the messy work of seeing your mission in this world go forward. Stir in us, stir in us, Holy Spirit, desire want to step into the messiness of this world in an effort to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for going to the cross to deal with our mess, to giving us the hope of new life through your resurrection. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.